Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Job. We'll uh, read a few verses um, from the first chapter and a few verses from the last chapter. I'm going to try to summarize uh, the book of Job. Um, I'm definitely out of my comfort zone in trying to summarize a 42-chapter book in our time, but our seminary community has had its share of suffering in the last few years and I would like to try to help us to encounter a word from God about that subject. Uh, Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, uh, suffering has been in the world and our world is now saturated with sin and so it is saturated with suffering. Sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. Sometimes we suffer because of sin that is committed against us. Sometimes we suffer because our world reels from the profound effects that are universal in our world, uh, the effects of sin. Uh, Sooner or later, people who need a word about suffering uh, turn to the book of Job. And uh, let's get started by setting the scene in chapter one, verse one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And chapter 42, I'll read just the first six verses. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make, you will make it known to me, he said to God. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Shall we pray? Lord God, thank you for your love, for your presence with us right now, for speaking to us in your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us now. Use your word in these moments, we pray, by your power to form us into the image of Jesus and to prepare us 
for all you have in store for us in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, I picked up a book at a used book sale titled J.B. That book uh, was actually uh, the script of a Pulitzer Prize winning play written by Archibald MacLeish. Uh, The two main characters of the play are um, workers in a circus. Uh, Nichols is the guy who's uh, the popcorn vendor, and Mr. Zuss sells balloons. The two of them decide to act out the book of Job. Mr. Zuss plays the part of God, and uh, Nichols plays Satan. Near the beginning of uh, the play, Nichols recites this poem, which is about Job. I heard upon his dry dung heap that man cry out who could not sleep. If God is God, he is not good. If God is good, he is not God. Reading those words by Archibald MacLeish was my introduction to the problem of theodicy. Theodicy has to do with the justice of God. How can this world have so much sin and wrong and evil and pain if God is all-powerful and also just? Uh, As theological terms go, theodicy is a relative newcomer. It was just coined about 300 years ago by a guy named uh, Gottfried Leibniz who was writing to try to say that the evil in the world does not conflict with the goodness of God. That was an important purpose at that time because he lived during the Enlightenment when people began to think in new categories, categories outside of biblical revelation. They were looking at the suffering in the world and they were asking the question Archibald MacLeish asks in J.B. Um, If God is loving, why doesn't he end all of the suffering in the world? But he does not end it, so he must not be loving. If, on the other hand, he is loving and he wants to end the suffering in the world, he must not be able to do so, so therefore he is not all-powerful. Enlightenment philosophers were asking if God is God, he would do something. So he must not even exist. For Christians, this has always been an odd way to think about the issue. Uh, You know, for people who think about God as an abstract idea or a philosophical construct, um, it makes sense to question God's existence when he does not behave as we would expect him to behave. But we Christians know God as a person, so we think about this differently. Imagine a man who confides in his friend that for the first time in his life, he's having conflict in his marriage. His wife, he says, has always been so loving and kind, but lately, She's been argumentative and even antagonistic. And the husband is confused by this. He says, well, I know my wife is loving and 
so she must want to stop this behavior, so she must not be able to stop it. But that's hard for me to believe, and so if she is able to stop it, she must not be loving, or she would stop it. And I just cannot conceive that my wife is not both loving and able to control her behavior, and so I've decided that my wife does not exist. <laughs> of, of course, God is not human, so the analogy breaks down, but I hope it illustrates the difference between thinking of God as an idea and knowing God as a person. So when we Christians hear uh, some of the arguments regarding the non-existence of God, sometimes our impulse is to say, how silly to question his existence. I've, I've known him for so long, and we just had a conversation this morning. He's in my life, and he's changed my life. In the Bible, the experience of suffering is on virtually every page, but the existence of God is never questioned. No, in fact, the, the question of suffering is directed to God. How long, O oh Lord, must we suffer? The book of Job is about the suffering of one man, Job. Job is introduced in the first verse of the book as blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job was also rich. He not only had possessions in unheard of proportions, uh, he even had them in symmetrical numbers. Seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, which is 1,000 oxen. And verse 3 says, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East, the greatest. Some people refer to Job as sort of an everyman figure. The way he's introduced, he's more like Superman than everyman. Super wealthy, super righteous, and super scrupulous. He rose early in the morning and offered sacrifices on behalf of his children, not because they had sinned, but did you hear the way he put it? It may be that my children have sinned. Between verses 5 and 6, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. God asked Satan where he had been. Just around, he says, you know, here and there. God asked Satan about Job, the way a proud father would ask someone about his son, the valedictorian. Have you considered my servant Job? Oh, oh yeah. Everybody knows about Job. Mr. Super Righteous. But I tell you the reason he's righteous is because of all the stuff he gets. The more righteous he is, the more stuff you give him. He doesn't love you. He loves the stuff. Take away the stuff and he'll curse you to your face. God allowed Satan to blast Job with suffering. Messengers came to Job and reported disaster after disaster, like actors talking over one another's lines. They interrupt one another with more bad news. The Sabaeans killed the oxen, donkeys and servants. Fire burned the sheep. Chaldeans stole the camels and killed more servants. And then the final messenger told Job that all ten of his children Children were dead. Job lost everything. Job faced more suffering in 30 seconds than occurs in an entire Shakespearean tragedy. But did Job curse God? He worshiped God and said, 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But Satan wasn't finished. God gave him permission to strike Job's body and when horrible physical pain was added to Job's horrible emotional pain, Job began to wish that he had never been born and he questioned the justice of God. He asked God, chapter seven, why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? He said in chapter 16, God has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He asked, why do the wicked live? Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. And Job accused God by saying, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. Along the way, Job also begged God to come to him. Instead, three friends came. They talked to Job about his suffering and tried to explain it. They began politely, but has any, anyone ever been polite to you in a condescending kind of way? Eliphaz asked Job, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But before Job could answer, Eliphaz said, yet who can keep from speaking? Eliphaz was the mystic of the group. He claimed that he had received a special revelation about suffering through a mystical experience. A word was brought to me stealthily, he said. Amid visions of the night, a spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice. Despite Eliphaz's stirring paranormal introduction, this word that he received was essentially that Job was suffering because of his own sin, and he hardly needed a mystical vision for that. Bildad was the next friend to speak to Job. He was sort of the religious authoritarian of the group. He said that people suffered because of their own sin, and Bildad seemed perfectly okay with that. He actually said to Job in re reference to the tragic death of Job's ten children, your, your children must have sinned against God. Then Zophar came. Zophar was sort of a Bildad who had been to seminary. He talked about, chapter 11, the, the deep things of God. He delivered theology lectures to Job, but he seemed pessimistic about Job's opportunity to pass the course because he actually said to Job that a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey gives birth to a man. So the three friends speak different words as different people will, but for all their differences, they repeated themselves and one another and kept looping through the same arguments and scoring the same points over and over. And everything they said was off point because they didn't know about God's conversation with Satan. They were sure that they knew why Satan, or excuse me, Job was suffering, but they did not know. As for Job, he was unsatisfied with the friends. It was God he wanted. And finally, in chapter 32, uh, the chapter opens with a drum roll. All eyes are on the stage. A, 
a spotlight flashes on. Everyone looks, and there he is. Not God, but Elihu. And the audience heaves a sigh of disappointment. Elihu is a young man, and he begins by calling attention to that. He shows up in his uh, tight designer faded jeans and his soul patch, uh, you know, a few tattoos. He's schlepping an ESV study Bible and um, has a mobile device with about 500 theology texts on it. He says, I kept waiting for you old guys to explain Job's suffering, but I'm tired of waiting. Somebody from my generation is going to have to clean up this mess. And after 28 chapters of off-point lectures from the three friends, it seems impossible to outdo them for sheer irrelevance. But uh, Elihu is up to the task. Um, he talks for six uninterrupted chapters and manages only to go over the same points. But then in chapter 38, what Job had longed for finally comes to pass. God shows up and he speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. I want to say that uh, the book of Job helps us to affirm four truths about God. Number one, we can affirm that God's knowledge is unlimited. In chapters 38 through 41, God asked Job a series of questions, none of which Job could answer. God asked them one after another after another until Job began to feel the crushing weight of his ignorance. And by reading the book of Job, we can feel the weight of our own ignorance. Uh, we can see the folly of questioning God when he has an infinite number of questions that we are incapable of answering. How foolish to think that we can understand God, his ways and his works. And sometimes we know why people suffer. A man drinks too much and drives a car like a wild man, hits a young woman and kills her and leaves a husband and children to grieve. Uh, there's no mystery there. The suffering was caused by wrongdoing, case solved. But so much of our suffering is not easily explained. And the book of Job teaches us to be wary of people who are more than ready to explain the suffering that only God can explain. Our knowledge is limited. His is not. Surely we don't have to be reminded that our knowledge is limited we don't make a 100 on every exam, but it seems that during our times of suffering, we do have to be reminded. In those times, we're, we're quite confident of our ability to understand gratuitous suffering. If God would just take a moment to explain himself. Our first son was born June 21. That was on a Sunday. On a Thursday of the same week, my sister gave birth to her first child. The problem was that the baby was not due until three months later, and everything that could go wrong with a preemie went wrong. I'll never forget receiving a call that Friday night, the next night. We were in our seminary apartment in New Orleans, and my sister was calling from her hospital room. And she said, Alan, the doctors are saying that she's probably not going to uh, live through the night. 
I wanted to let you know. But we named her Hope because we're not giving up hope. And I wanted to ask you to pray that she would survive. And uh, she did survive. This past summer was her uh, 35th birthday, but Hope has cerebral palsy. Um, she has multiple problems. In her first two years, had over 20 surgeries. She's never been able to walk. Our family could write a book about how we have uh, prayed and trusted God that one day she would be able to get up out of that wheelchair. But he has not answered in the affirmative. And uh, so many times I have asked God, why did you give me three ridiculously healthy children and my sister has had to watch her daughter suffer so. Uh, so today, our son who was born on Sunday is a wonderful Christian husband and father and physician. Why does the child who was born on Thursday have to live in a group home for the disabled? I would like to know that. The book of Job teaches us that as difficult as it may be, I'm probably not going to know that. Job's friends thought they knew. They said so over and over. But what does the plot of the book of Job shout at us? The cause of some suffering is unknowable to anybody on earth. It was impossible for Job and his friends to know why he was suffering because his suffering was the result of a conversation that happened in heaven and nobody on earth was privy to that conversation. God knew why Job was suffering. Nobody else could have known. Isaiah 40, 28 says this about God's knowledge. His understanding is unsearchable. Evidently, at the end, Job came to understand that. After God confronted Job with questions, none of which Job could answer, Job looked back on all he had said about his suffering, and he said, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful to me, which I did not know. Our knowledge is limited. God's is unlimited. Second, we can be sure that God's plan is invincible. In the book of Job, God had a plan, and his plan cannot be thwarted or suppressed. God's questions to Job prove human ignorance, but they also prove something else. We could call it divine self-determination. Why are things the way they are? To paraphrase a few of God's questions to Job, why do ostriches leave their eggs on the ground? Uh, why do horses have manes? Why do eagles and hawks soar? It is because God has determined that, that it will be so. The answer to all of those questions is because God has willed it so. God has determined what will exist and the nature of his ex existence. Divine self-determination. God planned the nature of the universe, and it is so. When we suffer, God also has a plan, and no one can thwart or suppress his plan. It seems to me that one achievement of the book of Job is teaching us that sometimes we cannot see God's plan, but it also teaches us that to suggest that God's plan is unjust is 
presumption. Instead, we should read the book of Job and affirm that God's knowledge is unlimited and his plan is invincible. It will come to pass. Third, we can believe that God's sovereignty is universal. In the book of Job, God is sovereign. He controls all of the outcomes. The words God spoke to Job communicate compellingly that God is sovereign over all the universe and that people who question his sovereignty should remember just how much humans do not know. Yes, Satan attacked Job, but only because God gave him permission to do so. God is in charge. Satan has to have his permission to do anything. As Martin Luther put it, even the devil is God's devil. The only uncreated and non-contingent being is God himself. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul referred to some kind of suffering in his life that was his thorn in the flesh, and he called it a messenger of Satan. But Paul didn't ask Satan to remove the thorn. He wrote, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul, Paul knew that God was in charge. And if Satan had sent some malignant messenger, it was because God had allowed it. And Paul also testified that his suffering, that was a messenger of Satan, was used by God to fulfill God's purposes in, Saul's, or in Paul's life. Specifically, he said, this was given to me to keep me from being too conceited and to remind me of my weakness so that I will call out to God for his strength. And that is what happened. The thorn reminded Paul that he was weak, so he asked for God's strength. So as a result, Paul experienced more of God's power in his life because of Satan's assault. Satan's attack was not only under God's sovereignty, it also served God's purposes. To return to Martin Luther, he testified to the same experience. He referred to the wiles of Satan and said that Satan had ill-treated him and reduced me to such an extremity of distress. But Luther went on, on to write that all the attacks from wicked people and all of the temptation from Satan himself had served to convince him of his weakness and his need to depend on God's strength. Luther said that Satan's best efforts had only resulted in making him a better theologian. Satan's attacks served God's purposes. What a glorious truth is the sovereignty of God, especially when we suffer. God, the one who loves us the most, is ultimately in charge. We can believe that God's sovereignty is universal. And then fourth, we can trust that God will uh, come to us. We've said that God's knowledge is unlimited. His plan is invincible. His sovereignty is universal. But sometimes sound theology can make cold comfort when we're suffering. Job had said that he wanted God. God came to him, but it was not in the way Job had requested. Maybe Job can be compared to the way people think after the Enlightenment when people decided that God should explain himself. And if he doesn't explain himself, then we won't believe in him anymore. That's not unlike Job in the midst of his questioning. Let, let God explain himself. But when God took center stage in the book of Job, he did not explain himself. He demonstrated the absurdity of making ourselves his judges by requiring an accounting from him. 
Is our world hurting? It is reeling in pain. A tsunami kills 200,000 in the Indian Ocean. An earthquake kills 300,000 in Haiti. First there's Katrina and then Harvey and Irma. The body of a 10-year-old pastor's son is withering with leukemia. The person you love the most breaks your heart. My former grader last year was diagnosed with ALS, and she died a week and a half ago. And in the midst of all that pain, we want to ask questions. But the book of Job confronts us with questions. Are we willing to confess that God is infinite and we are finite? He is the creator and we are created. I mean, if we insist that we have the right to expect God to explain his hidden purposes, or if we foolishly assume that we are capable of understanding his hidden purposes, then we will forfeit the opportunity of having God's presence with us and hearing him speak and knowing him as he reveals himself in his word. And a lot of people forfeit that. God will not be reduced to a philosophical formula or a theological argument. He is a person who is God and praise his name. He comes to us when we suffer, just like he came to Job. He has come to us in Jesus, and Jesus suffered. The astonishing truth is that the Almighty God who spoke the universe into existence suffered so that the writer of Hebrews could write that we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. God knows what it is like to hurt. He hurts with us. And he was hurt for us. Do you ever want God to explain himself? Look at the cross. He was explaining himself. He loves his creatures who are hurt so badly by this world's sin. And he loves us so much that he takes our sin and suffering on himself as a sacrifice so that we can be freed from sin. Now, he doesn't offer explanations of all his ways. He offers himself. Isn't that enough? This world is not ideal, but he is. Shall we pray? As we bow in God's presence, is some hurt in your life? Call out to God and he will come. He's here with us right now. And worship him. Only his knowledge is unlimited. Only he is worthy of worship. Or is someone in your life hurting? Go to them. Give to them the comfort you've received from God. God, we worship you as the Lord of all. Every day we see that this world is suffering and spoiled because of sin. And I pray that every day we will turn to you for the, the power and the comfort and joy that only you can give. We thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray that we will humble, humbly receive it and believe it 
and um, live by its truth with you as our strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.